writing for me is is a form of therapy. I have always wanted to be a writer, but I think writing for me is really, it's a way that I process things in a fictional universe. Author Kathleen Glasgow drew upon her own experiences as a teenager to write her first best-selling book, Girl in Pieces, which covered difficult topics such as self-harm and depression. And I can't speak to anyone's individual experiences as to why they self-harm, but it is incredibly common and it is something that I wish people talked more about instead of in a in a supportive way instead of shaming kids especially girls for what they're doing and I heard as a teenager so much from adults I don't know why you would do that to yourself you have such a pretty face she has also covered tough subjects in her books for young adults including how addiction affects the entire family to coping with the loss of a loved one there's so much guilt in grief as well like why didn't I ever tell them this or why how how could I not have helped them this way or why didn't I do this? And no one talks about that aspect of grief either. Kathleen joins me now for an open and honest conversation and why we need to make these topics available for teens in the latest edition of Grieving Out Loud. So Kathleen, thank you so much for joining me today. One thing I have to say about your writing is that it is gritty. It is not easy necessarily to read. It is compelling, however, the reader wants to keep going. What do you think um, is the reason for that when it comes to targeting young adults? I mean, they're exposed to so much anyway, right? You're not talking about things that they're not already exposed to. I think that I, I write about difficult issues because those are things that teens are going through in real life. And oftentimes they don't have the language to express how they feel about them. And sometimes reading a book that features a character that's going through exactly what they're going through helps them to deal with whatever's happening. And it also can sometimes give them bravery to ask for help. They learn how to ask for help. They say, this character uh, underwent this significant trauma. I can do this too. And they, they learn the words to use when they need to express how they're feeling and that they need help. And I don't think they're are some people who think that you, these things shouldn't be in books. But my answer to that is, but if they're really happening to kids in real life, why wouldn't you write a book that reflected their real life experience? Because you have to have representation in books. You have to represent what kids are going through because it really does help them to know that they're not alone. You know, I know with your first book, Girl in Pieces, you deal with the issue of self-harm mm-hmm. and depression. And I have a question for you, and maybe just you could hypothesize about why this is. So many young girls, especially, are dealing with self-harm, cutting. I saw it with my own kids, my my daughter, Emily, who later suffered from uh, anxiety and went on to become addicted and overdosed and died, started with cutting at about age 14 or 15. And as a parent, I mean, I had a really hard time. I tried to really understand this. I read up about it. Of course, I took her to counselors, but it was really, really hard for me to wrap my brain around this. And it's so common now. Well, first, I want to say that I'm tremendously sorry for the loss of your daughter. I know uh, 
what grief does because I've lost my mother and my sister. I, I self-harmed as an adolescent, and that's part of where Girl in Pieces came from. The inspiration for that book was that I was in my late 20s and I was riding a bus on my way to work and a girl sat down next to me and she had fresh scars on her arm and she was about the age that I was when I started about 14 or 15 and she saw me looking and she pulled her sleeve down and got off at the next stop and I thought about her for like weeks and I thought I should have said something to her like you're not alone there are a lot of us out there you can get help this is this is something that you can overcome. And I guess what I really decided to do was I, I think of Girl in Pieces as a 400 page letter to that girl on the bus and kids like her who are dealing with such incredible pain that they don't know how to express. And I can't speak to anyone's individual experiences as to why they self-harm, but it is incredibly common. And it is something that I wish people talked more about instead of in a, in a supportive way, instead of shaming kids, especially girls for what they're doing. And I heard as a teenager so much from adults, I don't know why you would do that to yourself. You have such a pretty face. That, that is not um, a proper response because in that way, it shifts it to all girls are, is our capacity for beauty and to attract people. Right. And it's, I think it's just incredibly hard to grow up female in this world because at a certain age, you're only looked at for the quality of your attractiveness. And I think that's really, it's very difficult. I think that some self-harm comes from traumatic experiences in childhood or in the family or extreme anxiety. It's, I think it's often misunderstood as a cry for help or being um, overly dramatic when really it's a coping mechanism. And I don't want to go into the technicalities of it too much because I don't want to uh, trigger or upset any of your listeners. But it's really, it's really important to understand that self-harm can become an addiction just like any other addiction and that it requires self-care and daily management to not do that thing and to learn other coping mechanisms other than harming yourself. Self-harm is a, is a, re, there's a release in it, right? I mean, isn't yes. that, yes. And yes. I, I, I came to understand that just like I would reach for a piece of chocolate <laughs> to relieve stress. Right. I mean, I, right. I, the two are not the same, but I, in my mind, that was one way I could, I could comprehend it. Right. And I do think, you know, men, obviously mental health issues and addiction mm-hmm. and self-harm, they're all intertwined. They are intertwined. I think that, I, I think that, People often misunderstand that, that all, all of those issues are in the same camp and that they're all something that have to be addressed. And self-harm, in a strange way, is a way of taking care of yourself. And it, it's very, it's difficult to explain, but it is, it's in a way that people who have to get high out of anxiety or inner trauma or pain, it makes you feel better for that brief time. And that's very hard to explain to people, like why why would it make you feel better to hurt yourself? But it's, you know, some people, they exercise till they drop. So they get those endorphins. And that, there are a lot of things that we don't consider self-harm in society. 
drinking a lot just to binge drink is a form of self-harm. Did you ever watch that show, Friday Night Lights? Yeah. Okay, so remember the character of Tim? And he's dealing with his dad who abandoned him and then shows up again. And he thinks, well, we're going to have this great relationship. My dad is back. And then his dad ditches him again. And Tim goes to the bar and he provokes a fight with those older, stronger men. And he lets them beat him up in the parking lot because he's punishing himself for opening himself back up to his dad. That was self-harm. And I remember I put this on Twitter and a lot of people were like, no, 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 no. And I'm like, if you think about it, that's exactly what he did. He deliberately provoked people so they would cause him harm because he's like, I'm, I'm going to learn that lesson of never letting myself be open again. Binge drinking is self-harm. Binge drinking is self-harm. Yeah. And people don't see it that way, but you're right. You're just hurting yourself. Right. Ultimately in the end. Right. Because alcohol is, it's, it's accepted in the society to such an amazing extent. Like we, we romanticize like over drinking and getting drunk and like working it all out because you're drunk and it's like, well, actually that's self-harm. How were you able to find healing from some of the things that you experienced as a young adult, such as self-harm, depression? You know, it's a long, it's a long, hard process. And there are some parts of me that have healed and grown. And I have learned tools as an adult that work for me to take care of myself and the people around me. Writing for me is, is a form of therapy. I have always wanted to be a writer. My mother was incredibly supportive when I was younger she used to bring home her IBM Selectric from work every weekend so that I could just <laughs> write in my room like poems and stories. And she never said anything like, oh, that's silly. You need to, you'll need to get a real job someday. It, it just wasn't a question for her. She was like, this is what my daughter wants to do. And she was, always, she was always my number one emotional supporter and fan. And she did everything she could for me uh, when I was a teenager and in my early 20s to help me. And I, you need at least one person in your corner, I think, when you're struggling. But I think writing for me is really, it's a way that I process things in a fictional universe. For me, I write a blog about grief and what I've been through um, with the death of my daughter. And I write anyway, every day as a journalist for a living, and I've written a book. And I, for me, it's very therapeutic. It's almost like I'm just throwing up on the page. <laughs> and you sense. know what? And those, yes. And you know what? That's good. I remember when you're in school and you're young and like you get to write stories and you paint pictures and it was this great time. And there was time in school mm-hmm. set aside for that. And then as you get older, that goes away. You know, even in high school, it's like, oh, if you want to take an art class, that's your elective and maybe it's full and you can't get in or you have to audition mm-hmm. for the music class. And I just feel like it would be just so much better if we had art and music and writing for all kids for like two hours a day and all of them could do it so that they could have this space to relax, do what they wanted, be creative, not be told that, Oh, your song is good or bad, or your story is good or bad, or your painting. Just, you need like that space to let your brain work things out and let your brain create. Exactly. And it's not about accomplishing something, getting an A on a test or completing a paper it's just about, yeah, living in the moment. Right. And there, yeah. I meet so many, I meet so many people, like older adults, 
were like, well, I wish that I could write. I just don't have time. I, I'm not any good. And it's like, who, who told you that? And they're like, well, you know, in school. And I'm like, this isn't school anymore. Make your time 15 minutes a day, type on your notes app on your phone and then type it out later or, you know, dictate to yourself the story or the poem, like make an hour a day so you can sit down and do something creative and your body will respond. You will have positive endorphins in your body and you will feel better things. Like when you're doing a blog, things start happening for you. You start thinking about things that maybe you hadn't really thought about before things occur and suddenly you're writing and it feels good. It's how I process. It's how I process my emotions actually. And my experiences. Now you started to mention your mom, Mm -hmm. you know, what a instrumental figure that she was in your life. Mm -hmm. And in your book, how to make friends with the dark, Mm -hmm. your main character loses her mom. Right. You tackle the subject of grief, which most people in this society don't even want to talk about. I mean, we talk about it a lot on this podcast. Most, most people who listen to this podcast are going through some kind of grief. Do you think kids are sheltered from grief? You know, your audience being young adults, do you think people try to shelter them or pretend like it's not there or. I think that, I think that it's a difficult conversation to open yourself up to a young person who is experiencing grief because your first line of defense is to protect them. Right. And you, you will say, you'll probably say all the wrong things. Like you'll get over this or you'll heal and it will take time. And to a young person who's lost someone. And even as an adult, you know, that that's not true. You just learn, you learn to live with it, but it is like tiger says in how to make friends with the dark. It's like a giant Canyon in your chest. And you have to learn how to carry around that emptiness. And that's hard to put into words especially for a young person. And I thought that when I I went on tour after I wrote How to Make Friends with the Dark and I visited classrooms and I met a student and he told me that he wanted to read my book, but he wasn't sure that he should because he didn't know if what he was experiencing was grief. And I said, well, you know, what happened? And his dad had a traumatic brain injury. And he said, I don't, I don't know how to, I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know what I'm feeling because he just sits in the chair all day. He can't really do anything anymore. And he used to play football with me and hang out with me. And we we did things on the weekends and he can't do those things anymore. And he's not the dad that I knew. And I said, you're, you're grieving that dad. He is your dad, but you're grieving that person that he used to be. And that, that is grief. That is grief. That person is gone. And the, person in front of you is the one that you have to get to know and like kids don't know they don't know that there are so many different aspects to grief they don't know that it's okay to not feel grief if you've lost someone who treated you poorly I don't know Mm -hmm. if that makes sense Mm -hmm. Um, some people are relieved when maybe their abuser passes away and that's a whole different kind of grief that we don't talk about either and I, well, then I you can feel that. guilty maybe for not feeling grief, right? I right? mean, guilt right? comes in. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of, there are some really difficult conversations that you have to have around grief. And I wrote that book because you know, I was missing my mother and my sister, like, like I do every day, but so incredibly much. And I, you know, it's hard to live every day without people. And it's mm-hmm. hard to talk about the things that go through your brain. Like I should have done this one thing. Like there's a, there's so much guilt in grief as well. Like, 
why didn't I ever tell them this? Or why, how, how could I not have helped them this way? Or why didn't I do this? And no one talks about that aspect of grief either. Like those, some of the regrets that you feel as the person who is still living. And what more could you could have, could you have done for them? So you took this personal experience and you turned it into a fictional experience, but through the character. Right. And what in your own personal experience with grief was most important to you to get across to the reader? That you need a community that understands exactly what you're going through. Tiger joins a grief group. Those people, they get it. There are some people that you will talk to who have not experienced grief ever. They do not understand. The people who have experienced it, they get it. They will understand everything that you have to say. And I I think that it's tremendously important, especially for uh, younger people to have a grief group, grief recovery. There are grief camps that young people can go to where everyone in that room knows exactly what's happening to you. No one shames you. No one tries to talk over it to you or tell you what's going to happen. They just accept all of your feelings. You know, I think it's hard to, when you're in the midst of grief. So for example, when I lost my daughter, she, she has siblings who were in high school at the time. Right. And it, I mean, this kind of leads me to your, your next book. You'd be here now because you deal with a sibling's point of view, struggling with a, with a brother who's addicted And literally that child who's struggling with an addiction sucks up all the time and attention of the parents. I don't care who you are or whether you're working, not working, whatever. And I have other friends, you know, obviously who've dealt with this in their families too. And that has a fallout effect on the other kids. And then to ultimately, I know, I don't think in your book, the brother who's addicted dies. No, but when that sibling ultimately dies, that brings up then a whole other part of that. You know, they they have grief, but they also have resentments and regrets. The siblings I'm talking about, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just, it gets really complicated because the, I always say there's this ripple effect of loss and it just goes out like tentacles. It is. It's very much tentacles. I chose to write, um, you'd be home now from, Emmy's point of view, because my other books are so centered on the character who's undergoing the direct experience themselves. And in terms of addiction, we don't, I don't think that we talk enough about the collateral damage of addiction, Mm -hmm. which is the people that are addiction adjacent, who are watching what's happening, who feel helpless, who try everything they can, even to the, the detriment of their own mental health and well-being. And we don't we don't talk enough about that mental health crisis that's happening. If you have 100,000 people dying last year of overdose related deaths, let's attach like six people to each of those deaths, mm-hmm. family members, friends, teachers, community. And then it spirals outward because the tentacles like you called it, which is very apt they're far and wide and they're very tight and constrictive. And I I wanted to have Emmy's point of view in there because I think it's important to those kids who are watching a family member struggle with something that they have representation in a book because it's really, it's hard addiction. The person who's addicted often does suck up a lot of the family energy. And if you're a kid, 
you're the one you just want to go to a dance or hang out mm -hmm. normalcy you want it to be, be normal right? Be kid, right yeah but like but like emmy you feel guilty about wanting to do those things but you also feel like you need to take care of your brother so that they don't die and that's not letting you also have a life and it and when you're addiction adjacent you have to learn to set some boundaries you can do as much as you can but you can't you can't not have your life as well and i think that a lot of people feel really guilty when they think about well how can i go out and have fun or, or kiss this person or go to a dance you know when my brother is like in such pain and i we didn't when i was talking with my editor about this book we did not want joey to die because addiction and recovery is a very long road filled with yes. highs and lows and relapses and recovery it's not a straight line that you go to rehab and everything is great because the world is not set up for you when you're trying to recover the mm -hmm. world is not forgiving and it's not set up for you to do well on your own you need a community you need daily care and management and sometimes you fail and you should not be shamed when you relapse that that's a part of recovery you could definitely write a sequel to this book <laughs> And 10 years down the road, <laughs> what happens to the characters, you know, because you're right. It is not a straight line and society is not forgiving. It's society um, is not forgiving. I, we, we don't, uh, we don't treat people who have addiction related or mental health issues very well in the U S we, we don't, we don't have a standard of care that's available to everyone. We're not, we don't have anything set up to help people long-term get off the streets, get help, right. have a place to live, get recovery help. We're not, we're not set up for that. And we should be, we really should be. Right. You tackle these difficult subjects. As I started off talking to you about when you're writing these really heavy things, you're talking about depression and, and addiction. And do you ever just have to give yourself a mental break? Sometimes, sometimes I do. I, I don't, they, because I have lived some of these things myself, they're, they're a part of me and they seem like normal to me because they, they make up who I am. So mm -hmm. sometimes if I feel like while I'm writing, I'm like, well, this, sometimes I step away, but usually I don't, I don't have to because it's not, it's not upsetting to me. It's normal. I've lived this way. People live this way. Readers live this way. And I, I think that readers really respond to honesty in a book and to difficult issues if you give them a chance to, to read that book. What kind of response do you get from your readers? I get a lot of handwritten letters. Anyone who says that teens don't write letters through the mail anymore, that is not true. <laughs> I have a P.O. box and I get the most beautiful art from teens and letters from teens. I get a lot of emails and direct messages saying that they saw themselves in one of my characters. And thank you for writing the story, or especially for Girl in Pieces, uh, that the book inspired them to seek help. That they it's could wonderful. Because they saw Charlie taking steps to build a better life at the end of the book. They are grateful that someone talked about exactly what it was like to self-harm and took it seriously and didn't downplay it or romanticize it because that book is not romanticized. Charlie 
does not suddenly get better at the end of the book just because um, she has a relationship with Riley, which is not a good one. It doesn't solve her. I feel like you have to be very open hearted to write about these subjects in a raw and honest way that will then resonate with kids. You know, they know kids know know if you're being real or not. (laughs) They, they know they uh, kids are, you know, teens are the best readers because they're open to so many different types of representation and experiences in books. And they will, they will not hesitate to email you if they, uh, smell something fishy in there if they didn't like something and they won't hesitate to tell you if they loved something. That's, uh, that's such an important time in your life. Um, yes. When you're an adolescent and you're reading like the books, some of the books that I read as a teenager, I think about to this day. And often there's one or two that you read as a teenager that really changed the way that you saw the world. And I, I just think it's a perfect, perfect time for, for reading. Cause those books are going to stay with you forever. Like you probably read, you know, more than 20 books last year. And, and how many of them do you think about like every couple of right. days? Like I still think about a wrinkle in time, like every day. <laughs> I right? love that book too. When I was a kid. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> I, you know, and I, I'm honored to write for this age group. I would like to be the person that writes that book that they think about when they're like 40. Yeah. You made an impact on their lives. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. I think that that's an incredible honor and I'm glad to maybe play a part in that for them. Well, I think that's a real gift that you do have a voice through your writing that touches and reaches young people, but not just young people. Your books were introduced to me by my assistant, who's just about 30. So uh, you have a crossover following as well. Yeah, I do. I have a lot of um, older readers, I think, who didn't have books like this when they were a teenager or weren't exposed to them, who maybe went through some of these things as a teen or are going through them now and they the perspective of the book really speaks to them um i read the when girl and pieces first came out i got a letter from a canadian reader and she was in uh her 70s and she said i thought that this book because of the cover was going to be a murder mystery <laughs> so i picked it up you know girl and pieces and it has these slashes yeah and she's like it most definitely was not but i could not stop reading this book and i want to thank you because you know I'm in my 70s now. I'm an old woman. But I felt like Charlie did when I was in my 20s. And I had all this anxiety. And I had a lot of body issues. And I didn't feel like I fit in the world. And back then, when you felt that way, they told you to just take a drink. So I did to make myself feel better. And I did that every day. And I I wish that I'd had this book to tell me I didn't need to feel that way. And that I wasn't wrong. The world was wrong towards me. And she was exactly right, right? Like how have we told women to deal with their emotional issues throughout time? Have a drink, pop this pill, go exercise, go do this. Perfect, you know, pretend like it's not happening. Don't get so emotional. It's something that I think that we need to stop teaching all children is that emotion is bad. Because then it just builds up into an awful pit inside you let it out right run you know heal exercise do something let it out you have feelings we need to express them and sometimes you express them by reading and something that's not self-harming because we can make the drinking or cutting or getting into a fight you know whatever however those are all self-harming so right right find something constructive that's not you're not going to hurt yourself 
I well, love, are you on TikTok? Yeah, yeah, I love it. Okay. I'm I'm a little old to be on TikTok. I don't I don't actually participate. I just watch. But we're trying to we're we're trying to start an Emily's Hope TikTok yeah. channel because yeah. we do want to. I don't know if you're aware, but the number of teens who have overdosed has tripled, and yeah. obviously the overdose rates are through the roof for all young people. It's lowered the life expectancy in this country, and so that's where young people are. So we want to get on. We want to be more involved with TikTok too. The thing, and I, I'm 53, so you know I'm probably older than you are. So the thing that I, I love about TikTok is I love book talk where yes. teens and largely women are just talking about the books that they love. And then yeah. so many of the videos are like, my self-care is reading sad books. And it is. And I, I just love everything that about book talk because it really it amplifies the love of reading and talking about books and finding yourself in a book and representation. And it's like, it's the funnest thing in the world to me. And I'm like, reading is self-care. Reading. Is so self-care. do you get on TikTok and, and talk about your books? I do. I'm on TikTok. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not very good at it because I'm a very awkward person, but I, I, <laughs> you don't seem awkward to me. <laughs> I, I am. I am on TikTok. I am on TikTok. And I, yeah. and I see, so many heartening things. When I was a teenager and I went to a psychiatric hospital, you know, that was, everyone was like, you, you need to be quiet about that. Or, yes, like, it was no, shameful. You're, you're crazy. And I go on TikTok and I see these teens who- They talk are, about things openly. Oh, yeah. they're, they're like t- totally open. They're filming. You know, you get your phone for like an hour a day if you're in the hospital and they will film themselves talking about what it's like. And I learned the greatest phrase from a couple of them. They don't call it like, the psych ward or a mental hospital, they call it grippy sock hospital. Cause you know, you get those socks yeah. with yeah. the little pads on the bottom and, um, and they say, so I'm in grippy sock again. And I like, I love that they're so open about it and it's not, it's not shameful to get help. It's not. And they I, think I have a lot of it. faith. I have a lot of faith in this younger generation. I talk a lot about stigma surrounding addiction and even for me to go public with overdose death. Of, mm-hmm. I mean, I know people, in the public eye who have suffered an overdose loss in their family and are not public about it. Right. It was a scary thing to do, but I think by speaking openly about our trials and tribulations and what just being a human being and not trying to pretend we have some perfect life is the healthy thing to do. Actually. I think it helps the most people. I think, yeah. I think that that's right. And I wish that we could, there's, there is such a stigma around loss and addiction and especially losing someone to addiction. Mm-hmm. My sister had addiction issues and there's always that, you know, some people will look at you like, well, why, why didn't you help them more? Yes. You know? And that, especially that, a mom, especially right. a mom. Yeah. <laughs> right? And it's like, you, you did everything humanly possible as mm-hmm. a sibling or a parent. Yes. What has grief taught you? I think it's a great teacher, which is why I asked you that question. <laughs> I think it's interesting. Why, why do you think it's a great teacher? Well, I think all struggle is there to teach us. I think all suffering is there to teach us. Yeah. And for me, I do believe I, I would, I would give anything to get my daughter back. Yeah. However, going through this and going through grief has made me a more compassionate, more understanding person. Mm-hmm. And I think it's taught me to be less judgmental and it's taught me what I can survive that I can survive and, and almost anything. I think that's an incredibly, that's a really profound thing to say. I mean, grief is a teacher in that way and that that is absolutely 
the worst thing that can happen to you. And somehow you, you keep getting up every day. Like there's some, there is something that it, it teaches you and maybe um, it's taught me that I could write things that help people through it, especially younger people who don't have the language to say what they're feeling. I did, I did do grief research for how to make friends with the dark. And one of the most interesting things I found, and I, I'm sure that you've had this experience where suddenly you're somewhere, maybe it's your house or you're out in public and like the memory of that, something triggers a memory of that person so strongly within you that you're just overcome with grief and you're crying. Mm-hmm. Like for my mother, I can be in the grocery store and see like her favorite ice cream and suddenly in the, how yeah. I used to give her ice cream after dinner every night. Cause I was taking care of her for a long time and how grateful she was to taste the ice cream. Or if I smell ponds, cold cream, like oh, because she's sure. put ponds on her face and suddenly you're yeah. like a puddle, even though you might have been maintaining for weeks. And that's called a stug, which is a sudden temporary upsurge in grief. I've never heard that term. I know I wrote a blog called crying at Costco. <laughs> so you, you should check that out. You talk about the grocery yeah. store crying at Costco, but stug sudden yeah. temporary, temporary upsurge in grief, upsurge in grief. And that's huh. what I mean when I say you can learn, there are things, there's a language you can learn to describe what you're feeling. Cause most people will be like, I, you know, I feel so terrible. I started crying in target, you know, yeah. because I saw like my mother's favorite cosmetic or something. And right. it's like, no, it's a thing. It's a documented thing. And that's, and it makes people feel And you're normal, better. right? You're, you're normal. normal. Yeah. yeah. And you know, yeah. even that in itself, even though it hurts while it's happening, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful feeling because you're feeling loss and love at the same time. Yeah. Well, grief is love, you know, it's, yeah. it is. Yeah. And it's, it's okay to carry people with you and miss them every day do something right. to to honor them write a write a story go plant a flower sit outside and enjoy the sun on your face and think about them there are like such little things that you can that you can do to help you maintain and i don't like to say process or work through it because i don't process makes me think of paperwork and we're not paperwork uh, right so we're ever evolving and it you know grief is is an open wound that is it literally it's never going to heal it's inside you right. we yeah. are the walking wounded those of us right. in grief are the walking yeah. wounded yeah so for kids though and that's your target audience young people teenagers who don't have the language who can express grief or trauma or what they've been through a lot of times it ends up in these self-destructive behaviors mm-hmm. you know that we've been talking about is there a message in your book? I know, I know you talked about how your character in Girl in Pieces gets help, but is there a message throughout your book that you're trying to teach children who don't have the capacity, knowledge, or wherewithal to figure out what to do with everything that they're experiencing on maybe how to process it or what to do, you know, what can you do that isn't going to be self-destructive? I think that the overall message, um, is finding that community of people, as I said earlier, who completely understand what you're going through and not feeling shameful for speaking up about what you're feeling and to feel okay 
asking for help and to find trusted people who can talk to you without judging you or shaming you. I think it's, it's very hard though, because when you're a teen, you know, you don't, you don't really have emotional boundaries yet. You don't, you don't have the tools that we have as adults to say, okay, I'm not going to engage in that because that's self-destructive. You, right. It's like all over, like your brain isn't really developed. It is, it, right. It doesn't develop fully until you're like 25. So, you know, your, your impulse control is very, it's very low. <laughs> so, And that's why so many kids try stuff and end up getting addicted right. too, or right. try stuff and die on the first time right. because their impulse control. Right. And so I, you know, I mean, I think there are lessons to be learned from um, lots of books about, especially for characters where they might do something that is self-destructive and hurt themselves in the process. I mean, I hear from readers for like, I stopped doing this or because of Charlie, then I got help. It doesn't all come to you in one snap. You have to think about it actively every day. Sometimes you have to wake up and think, I don't know what's going to happen today. I'm not prepared. But whatever happens, I'm not going to hurt myself because of it. Like it's a little mantra that you have to say every morning when you get up. Um, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, sometimes. that's life right there. <laughs> I mean, there's no, there's no um, handbook that, no, you know. There's, there's no manual. And sometimes teens are going to make the wrong choice and it's going to be self-destructive. And hopefully a parent or a caretaker is there to say, no, that wasn't a great choice but I'm glad you're still here to talk to me about it so that we can maybe work through it together and come up with some options for the next time that that particular feeling is starting to overwhelm you. And it, it's really difficult because when you have self-destructive tendencies, it, you know, they're hard to catch at the beginning. Sometimes they just balloon very quickly and then you're, you're in it because this part of your brain says, we're going to take over now and we're going to do this. And we're not going right. to listen to the other part of your brain that says, no, no, no. No, no, let's put the brakes on and stop. You don't, you don't really have that ability as a teen yet. It's something that you, it's something that you learn. Well, in your, your next book that's coming out very soon, The Agathas, is a little bit different, yes. right? You're, you're doing, I think you're doing one of my favorite genres, which is mystery. Right. So it, it, was, very, it was very exciting to write uh, this book with Liz Lawson. We both write about, we're both contemporary realistic authors, and we discuss difficult issues in our books. And we wanted to try a little switch because she loves mystery and Agatha Christie and I love true crime. And we started, we just wrote the book in secret, which was a really beautiful thing just for us. And we would trade a chapter every day and we came up with a big spreadsheet and we have an Agatha Christie angle in the book where the two teen detectives are using, using tips and tricks from Christie novels to solve crime. And it was fun. It was just really beautiful. And at a certain point we thought, well, Maybe this is something. And we share an editor and then we, we sent it to our agents and editor and they were all like, you did what together? What? And they were very, they were actually very excited because you have to try new things as a, a writer. Sometimes you have to move out of your comfort zone. And so for Liz and I, moving into kind of a really rollicking, fun, twisty read, even though there are some threads of um, real life issues in there. It's of course you deal with serious issues, right? Yeah. Of course you do. Yeah. I, I can't yeah. not, I can't not be me. So, yeah. um, so we are, we are very excited about this book. We loved every moment of writing it. And if you're a Christie fan, you will like it. And even if you're not a Christie fan, you'll still understand everything that's happening in the book 
and maybe it will make you an Agatha Christie fan or a mystery fan. And that comes out in May. It comes out in May. And we, right. you know, when we were writing it. We were also, we were determined that, you know, these are teenagers. They've never done this before. They're going to do the wrong thing a lot and make yeah. some questionable decisions. And sometimes their lives are going to have to intrude. And sometimes you have to cut your stake out short because you have to go home and do homework. <laughs> Just end the stake out time to do homework. <laughs> That's right. You know, as Iris says, I'm sorry, I got to go. I have to, I got to finish this paper. And so yeah. those are, because th- you're teenagers, you're not, it's not like, you know, it's your time like, is your own. Like, yeah. Yeah. You have to, you because your mom will get mad at you. So yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you for all of the wonderful books that you've given to the world. I would encourage all of our listeners to go out and get your books and read them and then pass them along to their teenagers or get them for your teenagers and read them yourself. And um, I just want to thank you for joining me to talk about all of these tough subjects that you deal with and that we deal with on this podcast. And I just really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was a joy to talk to you about um, reading and healing and grief. And I was missing my mom this morning, but now talking to you, I actually, isn't it? I mean, you just feel better talking. Yes. It's yes. You just feel better. Thank you for talking to me about uh, these issues and letting me explore them with you. I can't wait to read more. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Grieving Out Loud. Connect with us online at emilyshope.foundation. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please consider giving us a positive review. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage.